0: hurt in this world. Uh, it's, it's sometimes difficult to, to fathom that, even though there's so much that's unavoidable, but there's a certain slice, Lord, that, that we contribute and add on to it. God, as we hear uh, your word this morning and hear it explain to us, hopefully, Lord, in a new and fresh way, that, that your spirit would fall on our hearts in a new and fresh way and that, and Lord, that, that we, can, we can turn away. From whatever uh, whatever plagues us, whatever keeps us down, and God turn toward you for redemption and salvation. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Um, I uh, brought something along with. This is a uh, for you tech people. This is an HDMI cable. It stands for High Definition Multimedia Interface. But uh, in the Vin- thank you uh, in the Vanek household. We know it as the magic wire that brings Sesame Street into our home. And it wasn't too long ago that this uh, magic wire broke and Sesame Street was no longer coming into our house and the uh, very delicate ecosystem that is the household was upset. (laughs) Now, we... uh, I share this with you because we needed to re- replace this one in a hurry, um, but uh, going to the, the store and hearing the recommendation, hey, don't uh, cheap out on it, buy a mid-level brand. It's about $45 or so, and you'll turn it around and be, uh, and, and be right off again. Uh, I decided to cheap out on it like I sometimes do and, uh, and, and find a sketchy online retailer that was shipped from a southeastern Asian city that I can't pronounce, and it's just going to cost about $1.29, twenty-nine. This HDMI cable doesn't work. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> but the, the frustration of it is that it took about uh, two or three weeks th- to get here. Uh, during that time, you know, I could, I could kind of sense the ten- tension in the household. After which, I made another uh, deliberate decision. <clears throat> After this one, uh, brought uh, Big Bird and, and Bert and Ernie on in like, bright greens and bright oranges. I decided not only that I learned my lesson, but I went to a different online sketchy retailer and bought another one for $1.29. And it's not surprising that one didn't work either. <laughs> on, the, on the way to the store to finally buy the $45 one, I could, uh, I could just hear the, the words, right? They weren't said out loud, but I could still hear them. Funny how that works out. Um, four magical words just, I told you so. You've been there, right? i kind of both sides of that equation. I told you so why didn't you listen? We could have just avoided this whole thing from the beginning. Just, I told you so. Now, as you might guess, this happens to me uh, more or less often, but I'm guessing it happens to you a few times too. Somebody, a friend comes up and says, listen, uh, don't go to that restaurant. You know, it's just, it's awful. You think that it's good. You're going to regret it. Don't go to that movie. It's terrible. You think it's good. You're going to regret it. And then lo and behold, uh, a little while later, you know, just trying it and saying, listen, that was terrible. And the four magic words come in response. I told you so. Now, it's hard enough to hear and frustrating enough to hear when it's small things, right? Like uh, waiting for a cable or uh, uh, watching a movie or going out to dinner and spending some cash. It's relative small things. But as the, uh, the stakes get heightened, I think this like, emotional response that's going on inside of us when, when we hear the words, or even we, when we don't need to hear them because we already know they're lingering in the air. I told you so. As those stakes go higher and higher, so too does that frustration. So a friend bursts into the house and says, Dude, I have finally found her. I found the, the one And he starts to go on and describe her. He says she's just she's amazing. She's perfect for me. She's everything I've I've ever wanted in a woman. You know she's smart. She's energetic. uh, She's just impulsive. And and you're kind of thinking I've known you since grade school. And and those don't sound like words I would ever use to describe you. You're like soft spoken. You're introverted. You're just quiet. Uh, This is a woman. I mean, she goes out every night. She goes to bed in the a.m.s, man, not the p.m.s she's not the perfect one for you she's the exact opposite of perfect for you and six months later you know six months of of pain six months of heartache six months of realizing that you were right all along and you don't need to say it you don't need to say those four words they're already there funny thing about it is they're true aren't they It's right, objectively. Except for there's something about it that's just not helpful. What would be helpful? Along those same lines, what could you say on the front side so that you don't have to say, I told you so, later on? As as I uh, prayed just a minute ago, as we watched the video, there's just so much unavoidable pain and hurt in this world, isn't there? We heard the story of, uh, of Jen and her struggle with depression. And you just say, listen, there is so little that you can, you can do about that. And you, you see a friend who's just walking into absolute disaster, you know, oblivion. And you go, the decisions that you're making consciously, whether it's financially, whether it's in a relationship, whatever it is, Listen, you are bringing this on yourself. Isn't there enough pain and hurt and disease in this world without having to to add to it? If only there was something I could say now or do now so that I wouldn't have to say those four words on the other side. Um, kind of a, a, a good news, bad news uh, situation, friends. G- good news is that this uh, cycle, right, of uh, the I told you so's, this uh, is so common, this happens so often. That there's uh, an entire book of the Bible uh, in the beginning, towards the beginning at least, that's almost entirely devoted to this I told you so cycle. Bad news is there's so many stories in the Bible that there's a book entirely devoted towards it. It's, uh, it's the series that we're in right now called Unfaithful, the story of God's pursuit of God's people. No, no, no matter what, no matter how unfaithful they are, he still stays by them. And it's just, it's an amazing story to see played out because really the entire book of Judges is the same short story told 12 different times and, excuse me, 12 different ways with 12 different people. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go there in just a second. But in case you're just a guest uh, with us this morning, we we gotta break down this cycle, this repetition of the "I told you so" cycle. You know, first off, uh, we start the story and things are going really, really well. You know, the people are following after God and they're pursuing Him and they're in this relationship uh, together, marked by exclusivity. Now, you could call this stage like prosperity because things are going well, but that's kind of a loaded because, because it's not so much that, that they have so much, it's that they're just, that they're so grateful for what they do have. So, so maybe the first stage, not pros, uh, prosperity, it could be something like uh, contentment. You know, they're just deeply, deeply satisfied with what they are and what they have. And then as it keeps happening, there's this stage that they fall into called rebellion, and that's where things get interesting. You know, usually it's this kind of different uh, part of rebellion uh, in each different story, but in the end, it's always the same. It's always this, this turning away from God and turning towards something else. And the story that we're going to hear in the first uh, bit, it starts off, uh, the, the Israelites, they turn towards uh, Baal and Asherah. Baal is just a, a catch-all kind of a name to describe all of the gods that are going on, uh, uh, worship that's going on around them. When you lump Asherah in on that, it becomes this uh, the, the more specific set of a god and goddess. They're in this, they're just kind of bizarre relationship together, Baal and Asherah. Uh, you know, it's not an exclusive kind of relationship. It's this, you could describe it as a, as a mistress maybe or a or a consort. You know, and the thing about worshiping this Baal and Asherah is that you go to the temple. It's a great grand temple devoted to, to Baal. And then there's this uh, pillar or pole in the middle of it all going up. And that's supposed to be... Uh, representative of Asherah. And you'd, you'd sort of act out physically with the people who worked in the temple the, the love and physical relationship that you believe Baal and Asherah to have. You just want to, say, to hear that, to kind of settle in, right? Doesn't matter if you're married, if you're attached to somebody, if you're engaged, doesn't matter if you're single. You'd go to the temple and you'd act out this relationship with the workers there. I submit to you that it tears at the very fabric of what makes Israel unique this this mark of exclusivity And so wanting to be like everybody else it's not that they just walk out on their god Yahweh it's that they add more on and and it's it's like a square uh, peg in a circle hole it's just, like it doesn't fit something's got to give and, and it's Yahweh it's the lord that gives you know, as they push him out, as they welcome this this new thing in, and they become just like everyone else. It's not too long. (laughs) It's not too long before everybody else realizes, I thought there was something unique about them. Like, I thought there was, I thought they had this, this like divine hand around them, right, that that protected them, that shielded them, but, but they look just like us. You know, why don't, why don't we just go ahead and, uh, and like annex them? You know, just bring them into, into who we are, into what we do. Or if it's not that, why don't we just go in and just take whatever they have? Hey, maybe that would be even easier. So this is the next uh, I told you so cycle. It comes to us from uh, the book of Judges, chapter uh, 6. It's on the back of the flow sheets on the screen behind me. Um, just first, uh, first little bit here. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Uh, verse 3, whenever, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, uh, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops All the way uh, to Gaza, and they didn't spare a living thing for Israel. Uh, Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian was so impoverished. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. I just want you to see the picture that, uh, that the author here, the storyteller, paints for us. Sometimes in the uh, I told you so cycle, we'd have uh, like an invading nation, you know, the Amalekites or Amalekites, some uh, foreign king, get the, uh, get the guys together, you know, get the other nations together, suit up, put on armor, get their swords sharpened, and they'd come and they'd march into the city to, to like take it. This is not what we have going on. The image of this is like opposite of that. This is not soldiers invading. These are like thugs coming in and just taking. Except for they're doing this in such thick numbers. The, the picture that's painted here is like a swarm of locusts, right? Right? I just imagine, you know, a dad with his son out in the field. You know, he's teaching them how it all grows and, and how, how to do this and how it all comes together, how we feed and provide food for the family. And the grapes are like thick on the vine. You know, and the, the olives are, are just weighing on the trees. The, the cows in the field are fat from a season full of grazing. And it's just then that, that he looks up and he sees on a, on a light, on a sandy hill, a black cloud, like, start to move in. And he goes, well, we got to get out of here, son. And the kid, like, reaches up for the vine and says, no, 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 you leave that. You leave the grapes, you leave the cows, you leave the olives. Listen, go grab your sister, grab your mom, and we're going to hide. And as the swarm comes through, you get this picture, like, they just, they pick it Clean. I mean, nothing left. And the tragedy of it is that this didn't happen one time. Verse three says, "Whenever the Israelites planted, it gets the sense like they start to depend on, they start to count on it, you know." Like, just as as things start looking up for them, you know, maybe we're going to have enough to eat this year, there comes the cloud. And it says for seven years, you know, this happened, year in and year out. And so they did whatever they could. They hid for seven years. They tried to grow. They tried to do whatever they could to feed themselves, but they just hid in caves, in clefts, in caverns. Verse uh, 7, the first part, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian. Hang on. You know, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. This is part of that cycle. You know, we've heard this before. <laughs> we've heard it before. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and the Lord provided Abneel. And then the Lord provided uh, uh, Ehud, and the Lord provided Shamgar, and the Lord provided Deborah, and the Lord provided Barak. You know, we've been in this series for a little while now. We've heard this story before. This time, hang on, there's an interesting little twist. They cry out to the Lord, hang on, they cry out to the Lord because of Midian. If you're the underlining type, you might just want to make a note of that. Or at least just you know, make a mental note in your mind right now and say, isn't that a curious statement? They cry out to the Lord because of Midian, because they're so impoverished. You know, I want to submit to you that they cry out to the Lord not because they left him behind, They cry out to the Lord not because this other thing wasn't working. They cry out to the Lord not because they're they're returning to a a state of faithfulness and they want to return to that that satisfaction and, and deep contentment they had at one time. No, no, no. They cry out to the Lord because they're broke. Because the Midianites came season in and season out and they just pick the land clean. They cry out to the Lord because they keep seeing the cloud come down from the hills. I just encourage you to kind of file that away, like make a mental note of that because I think it points at at a state of their heart that, that is going to have deep implications on what happens next. They, uh, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, verse 8, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. I've done all these things, but you have not listened to me. Or, in other words, uh, I told you so. You don't like it, do you? I don't like it. God, we've heard this cycle before, five times before. I don't like that God says in response to their crying out, I told you so. The cycle is supposed to go, they cried out, and then the Lord raised them up, a judge. They're experiencing rebellion, suffering, now is supposed to come the deliverance. But the delivery that they get, no, it's not salvation, it's a sermon, <laughs> right? Listen, I did all these things, and we had a deal you did not listen to me. You brought this on yourself. You invited this danger is. Isn't there enough hurt and pain out there? You've chosen to add to it. I told you so. Now, I don't I don't like it. Difficulty though, is that it smacks it tastes like, like ungrace kind of going down. It's, it's a difficult pill, right? It sounds like just the opposite of a thing that you'd like to hear and encounter where we talk about the grace of God just constantly over and over and over. Maybe it isn't what they wanted to hear. Maybe it's what they needed to hear the state of the heart that i mentioned earlier right they cry out to god you know not because they wanted to return to this exclusive relationship with him no no no. they cry out to god because they're broke because someone the thugs keep swarming in and taking everything they cry out to god because you know what i don't have what i used to have anymore so god fix it And uh, Timothy Keller, a, um, a, a church planter in Manhattan with a really cool big church there, that you know writes a lot of stuff. And I, anyway, I'm always recommending everything he writes. So there's his introduction. He, he said this on the passage: you know, God sends the prophet to convict of sin before He sends the judge to rescue him from oppression, because the people are, and here's the key, regretful but not repentant. Right? That that that. They cry out because of the Midianites. They cry out because the swarm is coming. That just points at the key, doesn't it? It it just points at the key that, you know what, their heart hasn't changed. The the core of the problem hasn't changed. They are regretful but not repentant. You know, regretful has this horizontal plane to it, right? It kind of looks at the landscape around me and the things that I have and say, you know what, something has been taken away And I want that back. Regretful looks at the consequences of an action and saying, I don't like what happened. Repentance looks at the action itself. It has a a vertical element to it. To say it's because of what I did. It's, It's my contribution to the matter that brought this on. And I am so deeply sorry. Not that... Not that I'm now suffering. No, no. I'm so deeply sorry because of what I've done. And the kicker, the kicker is a regretful heart, but not a repentant one, a regretful heart. There's really no reason why this isn't going to happen again. He goes out to the mailbox. Pulls out a stack of envelopes. And, and one of them is from uh, a department store, which is odd because it says statement enclosed. And so he opens it up. It's in her name, but that's okay. He opens it up, and there's like a five-figure balance on all these cards he's got no idea about. And she gets home and he goes, um, honey, you got some mail. And she says, oh. And he goes, your statement came from the department store. And she goes, oh, I am so, so sorry. See, I, I meant to handle that before you ever, no, no, no. No, what's so sad about that is that you're not sorry for going behind my back. You're not sorry for, for committing this financial cheat on me. No, 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 you're not sorry for what you've done. You're sorry that you got caught. And the tragedy of it is that there's no reason why that wouldn't happen again. So yeah, when the Israelites cry out, because of midian God doesn't send a judge at least not right away He sends a sermon to say you know what we got to we got to amputate the heart of the matter here we got to slice that out Still smacks of ungrace, doesn't it? I mean if a, at the end of the day it still sort of sounds like Listen, I told you so. It's a little bit fancier than that. It at least provides a way out, but in the end, it still doesn't provide that way out. It just sort of tells you how you can dig out or maybe what you should have done in crying out. You know, you kind of ask, do the people repent? Instead of they've expressed regret, do they repent? No. Nope. Do they change at all? <laughs> As God continued to act, yes, grace. Pick it up in uh, verse eleven. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to uh, Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. We have an introduction to our judge here. (laughs) But, you know, our judge, uh, Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. And I don't know a lot about the culture, a lot about how to do this sort of thing, but I think, like, threshing wheat in a wine press um, strikes me a bit as odd. Got a picture of a a threshing floor in ancient times on the uh, screen behind me. What you'll notice is that these uh, stone threshing floors are are typically up high, right? They're on a plane somewhere. You know, they're they're out in plain sight where everybody can see. And it's like that because you've got your grain heads where you've kind of ground them up and then you, you take a sheet, kind of like the parachute game in elementary school, and you throw those, uh, those grain heads up in the air that, are, that have been ground up. And then the wind comes and blows through because you're up high, you're know, out in the open where there's no trees around. And it, and it separates like the chaff that kind of blows out in the wind from the wheat that falls down. Now you've got something to bake a loaf of bread with. Being out in the open is sort of critical to the process because you, you absolutely need that wind to just blow away the, the light chaff and separate it from the heavy stuff which is what you really want. Alternatively, wine presses aren't at the top of the hill. They're at the bottom of the hill. A picture of a a wine press here, something in ancient times like uh, Gideon was probably found with when the angel got him. Uh, wine price is down low because you want to make sure as you're crushing up these grapes and you've got the juice, which you really, you really want from the grapes to make wine, you've got to make sure it doesn't run away, you know, just like roll downhill or something like that and escape, make your work all useless. No, it's down low, it's away from the wind, it's away from everything else, it's secluded, it's buried. <laughs> We've got a picture of Gideon, you know, down in one of these in a hole somewhere. And he's like throwing up the, the wheat into the air and like waiting and nothing happens. There's no wind. And so he does it again he does it again. And it's just like he's frustrated and he's angry because it's not working. And he's this guy like, dull? He's hiding. Midianites might come. The cloud could descend at any moment. And when the cloud comes, he doesn't want anybody to know that that he's got something that you can make food with. Angel of the Lord breaks in, and he's hiding. And Angel of the Lord, I just find it, says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's a joke, right? He's like crouched down, like throwing the wheat up in the air, and nothing happens. And he's called by God a mighty warrior (laughs) for this thing from the truth. He's a coward. And his answer confirms it in verse 3. He says, pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I just, like, it's a whole nother message in itself. But like, this is France, like, hey, somebody should really do something about that. And God's like, yeah, totally, somebody should. Um, I'm here, right? Um, verse 15, pardon me, he says again. Uh, just like, excuse me one more time, my Lord. Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, and this is key, I will be with you, and you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. He will, spoiler alert. He's gonna go. It's a couple chapters long, that story, but he marshals the troops, whittles them down to 300. He takes on thousands, maybe 10,000s. He does. A point there, not in the strength of himself. No, he's a coward. But it's the very point that God is with the coward. And that's what makes him a mighty warrior. He's going to go on to, uh, to do great things. He's going to go on to save the people. He's going to be the deliverer. He's going to usher in this new time of, of deep contentment, satisfaction. You could even call it prosperity. He's going to be the guy to do great things on the outside and get rid of those people, those oppressors. Not yet, though. Gideon... There's something you have to do first. You see, sometimes when transformation, no, no, most of the time when transformation happens, it doesn't happen on the outside first. Getting in, it happens on the inside. So so before you go out, before you get your sword sharpened, and before you start marshalling the troops as a mighty warrior that I'm making you, before you go outside, There's something you have to do inside. And so he doesn't go to the Midianites, at least not right away. In verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd. By the way, first bull is the one that you use for breeding. It was the best one, so it's kind of an act of grace to use the second. I digress. The one uh, seven years old. Tear down your, whoa. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole or the pillar beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. So hang on, we've got like a pillar going up and it's not just the village uh, idol or foreign God. It's the, the village foreign idol or God that his dad made and he cuts it down, the pillar, the Asherah pillar, and he builds this, this altar to Yahweh on top of that and takes his dad's uh, bull on top, right on top Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, (laughs) offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime, which will prove to be a good move because they were very, very upset with him. (laughs) He does it nonetheless. You know, he's still developing into that mighty warrior that God is making him. But I just want us to see he's obedient, he does it. He doesn't go to the outside. He goes on the inside. Mentioned it before, but I just wonder if that's how renewal is going to come in your life. And you're weak. And I just wonder if if it's not going to be waiting for someone, God to, to raise up a, a savior or somebody to, to rescue you from uh, the financial indiscretion or the relationship indiscretion, it's not going to come from outside and just wipe it all away. It's not going to come from outside. It's going to come from inside. It's going to come from a heart of repentance. Recognizing sorrow, not for the consequences, but for the action in itself. That's what Gideon was first called to work on, first called to renew, first called to transform is within the community before looking outside. I mentioned this difference between regret and repentance already. And some of the the, the, the distinctions there. I missed the the biggest one. The, The very... The most monumental uh, distinction between regret and repentance is that when something is lost and, and you regret it and you mourn over it, you open up, we said, the opportunity to, to mourn again. It doesn't go away. See, that's just the thing. It doesn't go away because whatever you've lost, you have this fear that, that you'll lose it again or, or, or something else will be lost you just constantly focus on what's on the outside, what's on the, the temporary, what what could still be lost or be gained. You, see, you kind of go through life in, in this wavering kind of, kind of fashion that, that says, you know, what would happen to me if I lost this thing or that thing? What would happen to me if the job was taken away? What would happen to me if the, the, the wife was taken away? What would happen to me if anything just, is lost, the, the car in the driveway, the house? I would just be a wreck. I would be inconsolable because what was most important to me is now Gone. But repentance has this intrinsic realization that the most important thing isn't a thing at all, but is the Lord who cannot be lost. And so even in the face of severe loss or even threatening, There seems to be this stability that comes along to say sad now, but not inconsolable because there's still hope, because I still have a Savior, because the true punishment that should be coming my way for what I've done, Christ suffered on the cross and I will never lose him. We'll never lose him. I had a conversation this week. I guess a bit of a challenge more than anything, but just sort of a conversation that went along the lines of, isn't it odd how in this process of God bringing us to this point of recognizing this radical dependence on him, isn't it odd that the thing that we most long for, the, the, if you would call it the idol that we most long for, most want. is often the thing that's taken away from us. You know, so you're looking back in seasons of life, and you say, you know what, there was a, there was a time in my life where I would it seemed like I was so preoccupied with, with dollars. It was a time when I had the least. <laughs> Time in my life when I just I wanted so badly to be the perfect parent it was the time when my kids acted just like crazy kids. Isn't it odd how God has a way of just pointing out the things that our hearts long for, that are fleeting, that are temporary, that point us back to what lasts. Maybe he's doing that this week for you. Maybe he will. If so, I just just ask that you consider the possibility that maybe God is renewing you from the inside first. Let's stand and, uh, and pray together. Gracious God, uh, thank you for the story of Gideon, God, thank you for the renewal that happens, not just in ancient Israel, in his community, in his town, but the spirit of renewal that you're creating here at Encounter Church, Lord, In the hearts that are represented in the room and even outside of this community, the stories that we only have begun to hear. Ask, Lord, that we be attentive to you this week, wherever you may be moving. Give us the, the boldness to follow along after you. In your name we pray, amen.